0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello and welcome to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content. I'd like to start today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which our show is based, the Palawa and Pekana people of Lutruwita, and I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Ute people of the Gunnison Valley and surrounding mountains. So today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Rose Brinkoff. As two Tasmanians in the USA, we're going to be talking about research and nature and how we've been finding it here. And we're going to start by asking Rose where we are right now, because we've just been on a very fun journey up a chairlift and walking partway up a mountain. So Rose, where are we?
0: We are nearly at the top of Mount Crested Butte which is in Colorado in the Rocky Mountain.
1: And what are we up here doing?
0: We are looking for pikers. Pikers are very cute little animals, closely related to rabbits, so they're a legomorph, um, but they have small ears like a mouse or a teddy bear, and they're super cute. They hop around in the rocks and collect bits of grass and little flowers and carry them in their mouth and
1: take them into their burrow to store them there for the winter. They're so cute, Um, and even though Rose and I are plant scientists, the fauna of the US has been a big highlight for both of us so far. So we're going to start the episode by just reeling off some fun animals and maybe a few plants in there that we've seen while we've been here, um, with a brief description if we think it needs it. So bison, I saw some bison at Yellowstone, they were amazing.
0: Red foxes. There are a family of red foxes living just outside the cabin that I'm staying. So a mum and a dad and four kids, which are nearly grown up, but they're still very cute.
1: Um, hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are magic. They are tiny birds, the size of basically insects, sound like insects, and they they just hover the way they fly. is just amazing. Golden
0: mantled ground squirrels. They look kind of like chipmunks, but they're a bit bigger and
1: have a shorter tail. Um... On the line of squirrels, yes, all squirrels. I've especially liked the American red squirrel. The most common sort of squirrel around where I'm based are the eastern grey, um, but the red squirrels are smaller.
0: Marmots. There's lots of marmots as well around the place that I'm staying. They like to sit on rocks and get some sun and sometimes they like to dig under under people's cabins and under the outhouses and they cause a bit of a nuisance but everybody still loves them and a lot of them have got names. Like one is called Fork and one is
1: called Spoon. (laughs) And along the same lines as marmots, I feel like beavers kind of fall into that Mm. that category, that like big kind of chunky, (laughs) chunky, cute, fluffy thing. Yeah, love beavers, building dams. Um, And I'm just going to throw in a plant to finish it off, Um, the giant sequoias and the, the coastal redwoods really beautiful big trees on the west coast they've been a plant highlight for me my
0: plant highlight is columbine flowers um, that are up here in the mountains
1: yeah they're so beautiful so now we've got that out of our systems I'd like to ask Rose a bit about what she's doing out here so Rose where are you based out here and um, what goes on at the facility that you're at
0: So I'm staying at the Rocky Mountains Biological Laboratory, or Rumble, as they call it. I'm here for about two months. And Rumble is like a a field station where people from all over the US come to stay and use. There's like laboratory facilities and like living facilities and eating and all the stuff you need. People have field sites all around the valley. Um, Rumble is in an old mining town called Gothic, um, which was abandoned, and then they set it up into a place for scientists to come and work and stay.
1: And you're staying in a, a little cabin out there, aren't you? Yeah, in the forest. And, Rose, I know that you, you grew up in the bush, which for anyone who's not Australian listening is the forest, just Australian mm-hmm. version. Um, So how's it been going from your life in the bush in Tasmania to your life in the forest out here?
0: Yeah, so out here I'm staying in a little cabin called Tin Cup. It's just one room and there's like an attic bed. Um, where I'm sleeping. Um, And it's so gorgeous. It's like nestled amongst a little grove of aspens. And it's got a little porch where I sit and watch the foxes and the white-tailed deer. Um, And yeah, it really reminds me a lot of my home in Tasmania. Um, My parents built a a wooden house in the bush before I was born, and I've lived in that most of my life. And yeah, the style of the building and just how cosy and homely it is really reminds me of my house in Tasmania.
1: It's so lovely to be on the other side of the world, but in a place where it reminds you of home. Stay with us for part two, where we're going to ask Rose more about her research, what she's, what she's working on out here. Hi, this is post-recording Kate, and in this section, Rose is going to talk about a network of plant research sites across the world that she is working in. This is a really cool coordinated effort to understand how a particular plant ecosystem will respond to a change in climate. I just wanted to put a quick note in here to say why research into plant responses to climate change at the global scale is so critical, both in these coordinated networks and as separate research endeavours. So while most plants have similar basic needs, sun, water, and nutrients, the way that they respond to stress like climate change can vary greatly. Part of this variability in response is driven by their native climate. For example, here in parts of the US, particularly the parts that Rose and I work in, many trees freeze over winter, and therefore they lose their leaves in what I must say is a beautiful display during autumn, as these leaves would be destroyed by frost. This is much less common in Australia, where many trees exist in regions that don't freeze solid um, during winter, and are therefore evergreen, keeping their leaves year-round. These trees, therefore, have very different strategies. The leaves of deciduous trees, those that lose their leaves, have mere months over summer and spring, to capture as much light and produce as much food as they can, meaning that these leaves are built for efficiency, but not necessarily to last. Evergreen trees have leaves that can last for years, meaning that they're often made more durable. Differences like this mean that the impact of environmental stresses are very different for different plants. Climate variability leads to all sorts of different plant strategies. These influences how these influence how they respond to stress. Some places have two seasons, a wet and a dry season, others have four, some with very cold winters, some not. And this is not to mention that plant communities across the world have a vast array of different soil types that they're in and relationships with fungi, bacteria, and animals, which allow them to better acquire nutrients and to reproduce. All of this is to say that one experiment on one species or one plant system does not tell us universally how plants will respond to stress. We need research across the world spanning the very vast array of different plant species to encompass the impact that stresses such as climate change will have on our flora and the cascading effect that this will have on the ecosystems they support, global carbon storage and so much more. Hello and welcome back to That's What I Call Science. I'm Dr Kate Johnson and today we're joined with plant scientist Dr Rose Brinkoff. So Rose, we want to know about what you're studying out here. So what is your research theme? What are you trying to find out in the mountains? So I'm working
0: in an experiment called the Warming and Removal in Mountains Network or WARM. So it's a global network of experiments. They have 10 sites across the world, including one in Tasmania, which I worked on while I was studying at the University of Tasmania. And so there's a replicate of that in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado here near Rumble. So the experiment here is on the side of a mountain called Cinnamon Mountain, and there are plastic chambers a metre and a half across, um, and they warm the inside by two degrees Celsius. We can study the differences in the plants and soil between the warmed plots and the unwarmed plots. And in half of the plots uh, we've removed the dominant species so it's changed the composition of the plant community slightly because in the future when the climate's warmer one of the effects that we're going to see is species shifting in ranges, shifting in abundances and species going extinct. So we're studying both the direct effects of warming and the indirect effects of the plant communities changing. And so what's your specific focus there, Rose? Um, So... I'm a plant ecophysiologist, so I study the way the plants work and how they respond to their environment. And so in the warming experiments, I'm looking at how how plant physiology changes in response to warming. So I'm measuring things like photosynthesis um, and cellular respiration and water loss and comparing those between the warmed and the unwarmed plots. And then the other thing that I'm going to do here is combine that information with information about the plant communities. So I'm looking at the, the response to warming both at an individual species level and then scaling that up to the community level by by combining the physiological responses with the changes in plant community composition.
1: So you're le- making these physiological measurements um, of photosynthesis and cellular respiration. Can you just explain to us what cellular respiration is and how it relates to photosynthesis? So plants take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they
0: use sunlight as power to convert that into food, to power everything they need to grow, reproduce, survive. And the sugars that they build through photosynthesis um, get burnt up to power these processes and that's the process of cellular respiration. So it's using up the sugars that they've produced through photosynthesis. And then oxygen is a byproduct of that process um, and so that's why... That's why plants release oxygen into the atmosphere and allow us to breathe.
1: Very important. <laughs> also, Rose, I just want to ask you, so why alpine ecosystems? Why why is it so important to know what's going to happen um, when the climate warms in alpine environments? Um, alpine
0: environments are really sensitive to warming. So as the climate warms, the range of the species will often shift up in altitude so if it becomes too warm down somewhere low they'll they'll start moving towards higher altitudes where it's cooler but species that already live at really high altitudes once that gets warm there's really nowhere for them to go so it makes those communities and ecosystems really sensitive to warming. Um, Our Alpine ecosystems are also really good for studying climate change because we can look at changes along an elevational gradient so we can Compare things at lower altitudes and higher altitudes. That can be
1: kind of like a proxy for warming. Oh, that's really interesting. And it makes sense as to why there'd be a global network if these alpine ecosystems are super sensitive and a good place to study what's going to happen with climate change. Um, So stay with us for part three, as we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some tips we might have for Australians coming to the US, and a bit more about what it's like working out at this Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. Hello, and welcome back to That's What I Call Science. I'm Dr. Kate Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Rose Brinkoff. Um, So Rose, you're based out of the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory here in Colorado, but what is your position here in the US? Because I know that's out of a different institution.
0: So I've just started my postdoc through the University of Michigan. So most of the year I'm going to be based in Michigan, but then over the summer I'll do my fieldwork at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory.
1: So what about living out here in the mountains, Rose? Can you can you describe it a little bit for us? It's, it's so beautiful out here. Um, can you describe the sort of landscape that you work in and the flora and um, fauna and geology that's around you a little bit? So the experiment that I'm working on in
0: Mount Cinnamon or Cinnamon Mountain is um, in an alpine meadow. So um, right now it's in peak, peak wildflower season, so it's an absolutely glorious blanket of colour all over the ground. Um so it's an absolutely beautiful place to be. It's overlooking a little lake um, and a big deep valley and lots of other mountains that you can really distinctly see the tree line um, and still a bit of snow on the tops of them even though it's the height of summer. There are lots of winding rivers around and lakes and groves of aspen and conifers.
1: And you've worked in alpine ecosystems in Tasmania too, right? Um so is it is it similar? What what are the main similarities or, or differences that, that you thought of when you came out here and you compared it to um I think it was Interlaken, and um Silver Plains where you've worked in Tasmania?
0: Well, first of all, um this environment is much higher. So we're at about three thousand five hundred metres above sea level here. Um So it's real, like the tops of the mountains are really rocky and exposed. The plant species here are very different. There aren't many of the same species. So the conifers is very, very different being in a conifer forest than a eucalypt forest.
1: Yeah, my mind is blown by just how high we are. 3,500 metres, which is just crazy. Um, And I, I guess as a Tasmanian, you know, the concept of, being at an altitude where you might get altitude sickness is just never, never really heard of it. People talk about that a bit here, do they? Have you experienced that at all?
0: I haven't experienced altitude sickness. Um, Like some people do get quite sick, like feel nauseous and dizzy and headaches and that kind of thing. I do notice that I get really out of breath, um, walking up even a slight hill.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that the the oxygen concentration is actually lower. Like, yeah, it's just such a foreign concept, I feel like, to me and to us. Um, So now to finish off the episode, Rose and I just want to give maybe a few um, tips to Australians who might be visiting or moving to the US. Um, Rose, would you like to start?
0: So you might think that American English is the same as Australian English, but it's not. You've got to learn to speak in acronyms um, and especially forms and paperwork. So you need to learn what a DS-160 is, an I-9, an I-94, because they'll ask you for that. And you have to remember which
1: <laughs> which acronym is for which form. Yes, this is very good advice that I, I very much um, agree with. Um, I think when I came here, I was very scared about tipping because we don't really have tipping in Australia. But I have found, at least in my experience, that it's been simpler than I imagined. I thought there'd be a lot of maths and calculations involved, um, which scares me, especially when you're just out trying to have dinner. Um, But a lot of the time, they'll pre-calculate a tip for you and give you a piece of paper that says what 20% is, what 10% is, and the same in other places where they'll flip around a screen and you can tap the 20% or whatever you want to tap. So that's been good. Also, if you don't have a credit card, get a credit card. Um,
0: (laughs) I've never had a credit card, never needed one in my life. It's never been a problem. Um, But the other week I tried to rent a car here and it was all ready to be picked up from the city, which is about an hour from here. And I'd I'd walked for about half an hour in the rain, caught a bus for an hour and walked some more in the rain to get to the rental car office. And then they just couldn't give me the car because I didn't have a credit card, and so I had to walk back in the rain, wait for the bus, and yeah, just get a credit card; it'll save
1: you. You're probably all already aware of this, anyone listening. But the sizes of drinks and meals are a lot bigger, like on average. Like if you ask for a large drink, expect to be given maybe close to a liter. Just, <laughs> just, just a, a pre-warning. Sometimes it's good though because sometimes you realise that you're more thirsty than you actually were. But everything is a little bit bigger.
0: And when you get given an absolutely enormous meal in a restaurant and you want to take some home, don't ask for a doggy bag because <laughs> <laughs> they think that's really silly and they don't know what it means. Say you want a box or say you want something, say you want it to go.
1: <laughs> absolutely. There are there are. Yes, this has reminded me a few phrases that can be quite confusing. The the one that I've found has stumped me a few times or got me sort of stuck in conversation is saying, How are you going? Because here people generally say how are you doing? And sometimes you say how are you going and they're like, How am I how's where am I going? And it's just this weird, very slight difference in a uh, asking kind of how you are <laughs> that sometimes gets you a little bit stuck. But yeah, Mostly, mostly, I feel like it's been a pretty smooth ride, but they're Rosenized tips, and we hope they help you. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening to That's What I Call Science. Um, I'd like to thank again my lovely guest, who I got to visit here in Colorado, which has been really great, Dr. Rose Brinkoff. Um, And if you like this episode... You can find us, find our episodes on our website, that's science.org, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.
0: You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network you can find that's what i call science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team that's what i call science is proudly recorded in tasmania edge radio head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio GemMaker are a proud sponsor of that's what i call science GemMaker provide expert advice services and training to commercialize new knowledge and technologies Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.
1: At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite, exciting, scientific ideas. Want to know more about science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine? Then tune in to Edge Radio on 5pm on Sundays to hear That's What I Call Science. You can also find us on all of your favourite podcast streaming services. Be sure to like and subscribe us on any of our socials.